All righty, you ready? Yep. Okay. Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to learn something, keep myself entertained and visit with friends. Um, it's been going on longer than I expected, but it looks like we may actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and even if the pandemic ends, I, as long as I can keep finding really interesting guests, I'll keep these webinars going because I've got such amazing feedback from everybody. It's, they really find it really, really helpful. So that being said, tonight my guest is Gracie Herring. I have met her when I was in Australia, feels like 20 years ago, but it was about uh, 14 months ago, right? 15 months ago, just a little over a year. Um, and Gracie is, I'll let her tell you about her, about herself, but she's been doing something really interesting with a technique that I've known about for quite a long time. And I want to tell just one little story about, we used to call it thermography, but now we've, you'll correct us. Um, but Dr. Joyce Harmon back in 99 got a thermography camera and it was this big clunky thing. And the most use we got out of it was when we went to Africa. We went to Botswana. <laughs> we, did, we took it with us and we wound up saddle fitting an elephant um, and the saddle fitting computer failed and she had her thermography camera so we could look at the heat uh, on the poor fitting saddle. And of course I found this bolt that was about this big that was digging into the elephant. But the best part was when we went out on night watch and instead of using the spotlight, we used the infrared camera yeah. and we find all the animals. So um, I've known of thermography for quite a long time that back from 99, I don't even wanna think about how long ago that is now, um, but Gracie's gonna bring us up to date with modern technology and what's really going on with this technology because that's a long time ago. So welcome yeah. Gracie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. That's okay, thank you for having me. Great, so Gracie, um, I know that you have uh, in your PowerPoint, you have a little bit about you, but just kind of, you know, um, just kind of tell us like a little bit about how you wound up being interested in thermography, just real quick. Um, so my mom had had a look around for it um, when one of our horses was injured quite a while ago, but there was no one really around here doing it or doing it properly. Um, so once I got out of high school, um, I didn't really know what to do. I knew I wanted to work in the equine industry, um, but I didn't want to be a vet because I don't like needles or blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if you're going to be a vet, that's kind of, unless yeah, you're well, yeah. even doing research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I kind of came across a company in the UK, um, they were kind of just national in the UK, not really international. And I contacted them and I went over to the UK and did the training. And then I opened my own thermographic business here in Australia. That's awesome. And so how long have you been doing thermography? I'm coming on three years now. Okay. And um, so, all right. So um, why don't we just go ahead and get started with your PowerPoint? Cause I know that you talk about how you got interested then. And yeah. um, unlike my guest that I had the other day, who was probably in her 80s, there was a lot more history. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not so much history. That's okay. It's really, you know, it's so important that we have young people coming along in our industry. It's so yeah. important because you're, uh, you know, we need new ideas and fresh ideas and people are, that are, I wouldn't say more open-minded, but um, 
maybe less afraid to make changes because you don't have the background that sometimes gets in our way or are kind of stuck in our thinking. So I think it's really, really important that we honor the fact that, you know, there are young people like you coming into the industry and are looking at new technologies. So it's fantastic. Um, so I'll go ahead and screen share, yeah? Yep. Okay. Um, if it loads. <laughs> yep. Okay, can you see it? Um, it? There we go. Yep, we're up. Cool. Um, so I grew up in country New South Wales, Australia. Um, I've been surrounded by animals all my life, so they're a big part of my livelihood. Um, I've been riding horses since I was around three years of age. I attended pony club and open events um, in dressage, show jumping and eventing. I rehabbed my first horse at age 12, um, Miss Rosie. She lived on to the age of 42 and competed up until two years before her passing. So that was um, a pretty good pretty good age. Um, I've studied natural horsemanship and now I follow the teachings of classical dressage. Um, I have a keen interest in animal welfare, photography, travel, and I'm now a bit of a gym junkie. Um, and like I said before, I've been an infrared imaging technician for coming on three years now, and I'm also a level hoof one short foot practitioner. Awesome. And I have to ask you about the giraffe picture. Where is that? Oh, yeah. Oops. That's so cool. That's in Singapore. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah because we, um, I've been to the um, the Giraffe Center in Nairobi. Um, oh, every yeah. Every time we go on safari, we go in and you get, did you get a giraffe kiss? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it looks like there's so carrots there, but um, yeah, carrots. yeah, in Nairobi, you have, they call it pony pellets. It looks like, you know, pelleted head cubes, right? Oh, yeah. Put it in your mouth and the giraffe gives you a kiss it takes you out of your mouth <laughs> uh, yucky <laughs> oh and they have incredible tongues so i'm just i didn't realize that you'd been around yeah. they're super super cool they got gigantic eyes <laughs> so cool um so i studied photography in high school um and then when i finished high school like i said before i didn't really know what i wanted to do i didn't want to be a vet um, but I definitely wanted to help um, bridge the gap between professionals and help with preventative care of equines. Um, so I trained as a equine thermographic te technician um, where I launched my own business in Australia under an internationally renowned company, um, which allowed for many traveling opportunities um, around the world, helping with research and CPD. Um, and then uh, one of my highlights for my thermographic um, experience now is um, I correlated my findings from a thermographic report with a Sharon May Davis dissection I attended in late 2019 I think um, so that was pretty cool um, which I might talk about in my next presentation if I do another one <laughs> um, and then in June 2020 I was invited to join global company Vet IR as a senior imaging consultant offering equine imaging services to the equine owner and professionals, and then training and education to the veterinarian industry, which um, the IR offer globally. And yeah. uh, that's, that's me. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll jump right into it. Um, I'll be talking about equine infrared imaging. 
what it is, what it can be used for in veterinarian medicine, and then um, how we use it and the importance of correct equine application and qualified veterinarian interpretation to assist diagnosis. So maybe you talk about this in your talk, but um, you know, so many of us think of it as thermography and yet you're calling it infrared imaging. Yeah, so I guess thermography is the old term for it. I'm referring it to um, infrared imaging because that's really what it is. Um, I think that's the more professional name for it, yeah. And, and do you know why it was called thermography? I don't know why. I guess that's just what they called it back then. Yeah, I mean, because thermo, you're, you're looking at heat, heat signatures mm -hmm. and it's like uh, heat signature photography. So that's my only guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can use thermography or infrared imaging. I prefer to use infrared, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so I'll just talk a bit um, about the history of thermography or infrared imaging. So the roots of thermography or heat differentiation can be traced back to um, 1700 BC in Egypt. Um, the documents they found in the pyramids, uh, pyramids evidenced um, the association of temperature with disease. So due largely to their embalming process um, where they removed the human organs, the ancient, ancient Egypts um, gained a great knowledge in anatomy. So they were well advanced in the understanding of the human body um, elements and um, afflictions. And then in 400 BC, um, the Greek physician Hippocrates wrote, um, in, in whatever part of the body excess heat or cold can be felt, the disease is there to be discovered. Um, it is written that he immersed his patients in wet mud and the area that dried more quickly, indicating a warmer region, was then considered um, the area of diseased tissue. So um, you can see this when using products such as Tough Rock, um, areas dry faster than others. Um, Hippocrates also believed that the human body functioned as one unifying organism and needed to be treated in health and disease as an integrated whole. So in diagnosis, not only is the patient's subjective systems uh, symptoms, but also the objective signs of disease should also be considered in order to arrive at an accurate um, assessment of, of what is going on. Oh, who, who yeah. knew that we, they were looking at this in that way all the way back then? I would have never, yeah. never made that connection. This, that's cool. Um, and then in the second century AD, Hero of Alexander attempted to measure heat. Um, he developed the bulb thermoscope. And then moving into the late 1500s, Galileo made amendments to his thermoscope, um, improving the understanding and use of temperature. Um, so this is a modern day thermoscope. Uh, the density of the liquid changes in proportions to its temperature. As the air temperature changes, then the temperature and density of the water changes, causing some glass bubbles to float and others to sink as the temperature fluctuates. So the lowest floating sphere is the current temperature. Um, and then as centuries passed, others developed more sophisticated devices, including the mercury thermometer and the Fahrenheit and Celsius scales of temperature measurement. I have a thermoscope, but I didn't know that's what, what it was called. 
I just think they're pretty. <laughs> but now I know. That's great. This is awesome. Yeah, now you know. Um, in 1800, a uh, breakthrough came when Sir William Hassell discovered the existence of invisible light or what is today known as infrared, so meaning below the red. Um, directing sunlight through a glass prism to create a spectrum, he then measured the temperature of each colour. What he noticed was that each colour, so violet, blue, green, yellow, orange and red light, had different temperatures of and increased from violet to red um, on the spectrum. Um, he found that the region just below the red portion of the spectrum where no sunlight was visi visible had the highest temperature of all. Um, and then Hassel's son, um, he was an avid photographer. Um, he created an evaporograph image using carbon suspended in alcohol. This allowed him to record the heat rays of, infra of the infrared side of red, so where there's no light visible. He termed this image a thermogram laying the foundation of what would then become over a, over a century later, um, highly sophisticated thermal imaging devices used in areas such as military, industrial and medical applications. And then I'll just go through a bit of a brief um, timeline of thermography. Um, so in 1835, um, the thermometer enabled physicians to establish the standard that the temperature of inflamed regions of the body is higher than the normal areas. So the standard temperature of a normal healthy human is set at um, 37 degrees Celsius and then 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, I believe. Yep. Not quite, not quite sure about the Fahrenheit. That's it. <laughs> um, and then in the 1920s, phonogra uh, photography enabled um, infrared devices to be developed. Um, and then between 1930 and 1950, infrared sensor equipment was developed um, for the use of military applications and troop detections during World War II and the Korean conflict. Um, then thermography was considered a destructive weapon, a uh, weapon of destruction, sorry. Um, so post-war declassifications of infrared technology meant that they could now resume their original use, which was clinical medicine. So basically so not all, then dur for, during wartime, they figured out that this was a great way to find the enemy. Yeah, yeah. And um, not all countries have actually declass declassified it as a destructive weapon. So I can't take my device to um, Dubai or Korea. And if I was to travel to America, I'd actually have to let the authorities know that I was traveling with that piece of equipment. Wow. So, yeah. so our little experiment of looking for animals at night on the safari um, was actually what they really were doing to use it to. to yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. Wow, that's so fascinating. I had I had never thought about that as a as a weapon, and I had no idea that it was classified and that you you know. Mm -hmm. um, wow, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and then in the 1960s, uh, the science was here. Large amounts of research were being published, um, increasing its awareness and its value um, in human medicine. It was also introduced into the equine industry at this time, um, used primarily for a screening tool at racetracks and in performance horse applications. And it was also used in the dairy industry to monitor mastritis, which I think is a... Um, 
utter uh, dysfunction, I believe. Right, mastitis is where they get an uh, inflammation or infection in one of the uh, teats and yeah. be really serious. So um, I, that doesn't surprise me at all to use it in, in that because you're gonna get an increase of heat when you have the inflammation in the udder. So um, yeah. that takes me back a very long time to when I knew about mastitis, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and then in 1971, the American Academy of Thermography was founded um, and they had a vision to make medical thermal imaging an essential tool to improve patient care. And then in 1972, um, thermography was announced by the Department of Health and Education and Welfare of the USA as beyond experimental in several areas, including um, the evaluation of the female breast. So um, helping with uh, breast cancer. Um, and then in the 1980s, the first fully digital infrared system run by a personal computer was introduced. Um, this was a key milestone as prior to this, the images were in black and white and the user was required to physically colorize the segments. Um, it also allowed for image and data storage and analysis. During this time, um, standards of medical thermography were in place and new training centres were opened for physicians and technicians. And the FDA approved medical thermography devices as an adjunctive tool with guidelines. And then in 1988, um, this saw a massive start in the refinement of imaging devices, um, resulting in clear defined images captured by certified technicians and qualified physicians to interpret. Um, so there's um, quite a wide range of infrared applications. So you have your automobile industry, um, defense, industrial marine, and then professional trades, um, such as electricity, um, building and equipment inspections. And then outdoor, such as your search and rescue, farm management, um, wildlife conservation, including monitoring of zoos and animals, uh, zoo animals and horses and dairy cows. And then obviously you have your clinical applications for human and veterinarian medicine. So, so it's really, um has expanded quite a bit. I mean, I actually yeah. personally have had um, imagery of, of my breasts using thermography. I, I've forgotten that I, that's what I used to, uh, there used to be somebody that I would go to for that. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I knew about it, an application for buildings, but I never thought about it like in terms of management, like is the bottom left picture there, like kind of keeping track of kangaroos. Yeah, so that's actually my own image. Um, we went out late at night. There's a bit of a story behind this. And we were photographing the kangaroos. And then I'm so annoyed that I did not get this image. The dogs had run off and they were surrounding something. And I turned the camera to where they were and there was this snake up on its, like, up on its hind end, like at the dogs. And mom and I just freaked out and ran away. I'm so annoyed I didn't get it on on an image, but yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, so that makes me want to ask, what's the most interesting thing you have imaged? The most interesting thing? Like unusual. Um, unusual? When I went to the UK um, in 2019 for our CPD training, um, we went to the zoo 
and we just we were like having fun with the camera like imaging different animals probably penguins oh wow (laughs) and is that a cat in the upper picture there yeah that's that's my cat (laughs) wow that's so interesting so um so basically uh you know anything well like with a snake did the snake have a heat signature because aren't they reptilian and therefore cold-blooded it was on gray scale so let me think about that yeah it was it was on the um colder end of the spectrum yeah yeah, because I mean, mostly we're gonna be you're gonna be looking at mammals because we're yeah. hot blooded. But that's it's so interesting, and I had forgotten. It's you've reminded me of of these different applications which I knew about, but I kind of just forgot about. Yeah, I think it's been around a lot longer, and we than we realize. Yeah, it has yeah definitely yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, So then these are kind of the main infrared um, equine applications. So that we kind of categorize our cases into um, applications. So you have your lameness and poor performance, your pain assessment, um, preventative care, and then monitoring. So I won't go into too much detail on those. Um, Maybe I can save those for next time as well. Do you have a picture of your camera? Um, I don't. I have my camera here. Okay, great. Here. Maybe, maybe so you maybe can I'll and show us your camera because because it's really changed a lot since, like I said. The yeah, I'll, I'll show you in a minute when I go through the technology side of things. Okay, awesome. Um, so then thinking about kind of what we've just gone over, um, how is it that we can use a tool to measure the skin surface temperature to assess um, physiological changes to the body of an animal or human? Um, So the surface of a human or equine body is a highly efficient efficient radiator, making it possible to detect emissions of infrared coming off the skin. Um, So using using remote sensing, so a thermal imaging camera, um, we can map the thermal footprint of temperature distribution. Heat is produced by the vascular activity and metabolic reactions taking place in the tissue. So um, humans and equines um, must thermoregulate in order to survive. Um, So thermoregulation is a mechanism by which mammals maintain body temperature with tightly controlled self-regulation independent of external temperatures. Temperature regulation is a type of homeostasis and a means of preserving a stable internal temperature in order to survive. So basically what you're saying is we have to, we have to either add clothes or shed heat in order to maintain a stable temperature. And if that's why we look at, you know, you take your, everybody's busy taking their temperatures now with COVID and we're all like, um, if you get a little too hot, you get, start to get nervous. Yeah. Um, Um, So an infrared camera is not a thermometer. But um, while readings can get close to actual temperatures, measurements are relative to the environment and um, set standards for application. Infrared cameras like a thermometer are calibrated to some thermodynamic reference. Um, So kind of like a baseline or starting point. Um, So the diagram here, um, it shows the different ways equines um, regulate their temperature um, from their surroundings and bodily functions. So what have you, you've got um, 
Sorry, Obviously respiratory. Oops. Let me <laughs> go back. look at some of the things you had on that picture. <laughs> uh, conduction, convection. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, this makes, this makes me think of some of these anhydrosis horses that can't sweat. Is that, yeah. does that, uh, is that something that you can look at with infrared and, uh, pick up or is that kind of a separate thing? Um, I think that would probably be a separate thing. I'm not quite sure about that. I'll have to get back to you on that. No problem. But if anybody's ever had an anhydrosis horse, a horse that won't sweat, you know what a big deal it is because sweating is one of the ways in which we thermoregulate. Yeah. But yeah, that would possibly be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then I'll go through the um, technology side of things. Um, so there's quite a, a wide range of um, thermal devices on the market um, from a range of manufacturers. These devices have um, varying specifications depending on the application. So like the ones for your phone, um, these show um, the spectrum, so the color range, but don't really show the specificity. Um, they're good for locating leaks in pipes or finding drafts in windows or doors or just taking pretty pictures of your animals. Um, but obviously it's not ideal for the use of um, physiological imaging of animals. So the device that needs to be used um, needs to either be specifically designed for that range or application or have the necessary specifications um, to operate accurately and effectively within that range. So the technology needs to be able to measure and detect the smallest temperature differentiations uh, between two points. So for the FLIR models, which is what I use, um, this depends on several technical specifications. So you have your pixel density. Um, so the higher the resolution, the more information you're gonna have within an image. Um, minimum specs that the IR would recommend um, for animal physiological imaging would be um, 640 by 480, um, which can be achieved with um, a T660 model or above in the FLIRS. Um, and then you have your high thermal sensitivity. So your NETD, which stands for noise equivalent temperature difference. So the lower the NETD, number the um, better the thermal sensitivity. And then you have your internal calibration checks and program of annual calibration, um, which is recommended to maintain devices stated accuracy within the manufacturer's specifications. So there's there's different qualities then I think is what you're saying. There's different quality of yeah. red. And mm -hmm. uh, there's some, I mean, I had one that just was on my iPhone and we looked at the house. Um, yeah. But when I took it to, I did take that one to Africa with me, but it was terrible at picking up anything at a distance. It really yeah. wasn't designed for that. So the yeah. units that you're talking about in terms of animal uh, medical devices, they're, they have to be of a higher range, higher end, if you will. Yeah. To yeah. Be able to pick that up. Okay. You got it. Um, so I guess why use IR cameras instead of the human hand? Um, the human hand can detect uh, temperature differences of around two degrees, um, while the temperature difference of around one degrees or less can result in sympathetic dysfunctions 
meaning that they may be overlooked in the early stages simply from palpation. So that's interesting that I have been asked this before. People are like, well, why do you need an eye? Why do you need an infrared camera? Like, why can't you just use palpation? Simply, like simply because the camera is going to pick up smaller differences. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, not everybody's got the same sensitivity in their hand, person to person to person. Okay. You could mm-hmm. be very different in what you, you know, what you feel, whereas it sounds like with your using equipment, you, if you calibrate, everybody calibrates the same, then you're looking at the same exact reading. You're not okay. having that sort of, uh, uh, less objective, I should say. Than yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll just go over some, I'll go over the two main types of, um, diagnostic imaging. So obviously all imaging technologies have their specific role and value in the diagnostic arena. There are two main types of um, imaging tools used in equine diagnosis. So you have your anatomical and your physiologic. Anatomical includes um, x-ray, so that provides structural and anatomical information of the subject. And then your MRI, which detects soft tissue, um, tendon and ligament and then also joint capsules and articulate cartilage. This gives um, exquisite anatomical detail and precise precise localization of lesions. And then ultrasound, um, which uses um, high frequency sound waves to visualize muscles, tendons, and internal organs to capture size, structure, and pathological lesions. And then you have your physiological imaging. So that includes um, stintigraphy, so bone scan. Um, This captures the horse's skeleton um, using a gamma camera that detects a a benign radioactive isotope given intravenously. So the radioactive isotope travels to the bone and um, abnormal uptake is detected as a hot or cold spot. Um, uptake of the isotope actually um, helps pinpoint the site of injury or problem. And then you have your infrared imaging. So this provides a referred functional map of the body, um, structure, function, abnormality associated with these conditions, um, such as um, trauma, acute chronic conditions will all change the underlying circulatory activity and blood flow. So basically they, they, they all play different roles. They all have different pieces of information that they gather. Thank you for stigmography because I was always, I always got that confused. Um, um, but this is really helpful to realize that, um, different technologies are going to give you a different picture of things. And so Mm -hmm. using the technology that is best for what you're trying to discover makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So they all have their own areas. Um, each are gonna, they're gonna help each other. And yeah. Um, so then this is just a table going through um, each diagnostic tool, um, what it detects, average cost, and then advantage and disadvantage. I won't go too much into it, um, but I guess I'll go through the infrared one. Why use infrared imaging? It's um, non-invasive and non-contact, inexpensive, 100% safe, and it uses no dyes, rays, or vibrations. It's sedation-free and can be done at home or at a veterinarian practice if you prefer. 
Um, whereas the others, most are limited by region, um, except for stintigraphy, you can pretty much image the whole body with that. Um, or they require sedation or anesthesia, yeah. Right, so, so uh, IR is, is pretty benign on the scale. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Pretty, the most non-invasive, I would right. say, yeah. Um, so then um, IR imaging is uh, suitable for the use in all horses, um, including foals, breeding mares, performance horses, as well as the everyday riding horse. Uh, IR imaging enables riders and trainers an alternative cost-effective method to identify problems in their horses earlier on before clinical signs occur. Subtle changes in gait, behavior, or temperament are often the first indicators that something's, um, something's wrong or not quite right. Um, for example, horses that start kicking up, rearing, change in movement pattern, not wanting to go forward, or just a general change in attitude. Also horses that have passed traditional lameness um, veterinarian workups, but are still not quite right. Um, so I guess all this is kind of relevant considering the horse is a prey animal and is designed to hide pain. Um, we can obviously pick up injuries that they may be trying to hide. I always think that people are prey animals too because we try to hide our pain just as well. <laughs> Um, so I'll just go through some um, detectable injuries and conditions. Um, so IR imaging does have um, quite a wide range of um, conditions it can identify um, and is a great tool to monitor these changes over time. So it's been used to identify um, things such as lameness, palmar foot pain, subsolar and subdural abscesses. Um, other inflammatory conditions of the hoof, such as navicular disease or um, syndrome, joint diseases, including OA or dorsal metacarpal disease, um, dental disease and sinus issues, muscle injuries, including strains and inflammation, and then also your spinal um, conditions such as kissing spine, um, dorsal spinous ligament injuries, muscle pain, um, with the injuries and sacroiliac problems, and then also tendon and ligament injuries. Um, so this is a big one for me, um, as lesions can appear um, on a thermal image up to two weeks before physical evidence of swelling and pain. So therefore, lesions of potential clinical significance can be identified, and then adjustments of training um, programs can be made to prevent further um, damage to that area. Yeah. So I guess, like, that, well, I was just going to say ligament tendon, tendon injuries. It's the more I keep learning, like from these webinars, the more you realize that it, a lot of them are chronic and then suddenly there's an event. So if mm -hmm. you can pick up that sooner before it has the event that yeah. really does it in, um, that mm -hmm. would be awesome. Mm, definitely. I really like that one's a big one for me. I like that one. Um, and then this is just a quote from an article from the horse. So at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, um, where there was millions of dollars worth of equipment available to the equestrian teams, 
the most requested diagnostic tool was thermography. Um, it was fast, it was portable, it was non-invasive, and it could, could detect injury sites before they became leanness problems and could guide practitioners to specific anatomic areas for study using other diagnostic techniques. And it was extremely accurate when use, used by an experienced practitioner. I, I think that the most important words there are experienced practitioner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I've, I've always said, it's like when people ask me about a particular technique, uh, I, I'm always thinking about who it is that's applying that technique. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that that can't be overstated that it, it, you know, it's so much more that the person using it and their training and their experience and their, uh, credibility, if you will. Um, yeah, because I, I've known with like the computer pressure pad technology, which has been around for quite a while now, um, yeah. you know, you can simply change settings and get a different result. So yeah, exactly. um, the sort of the experienced ethical practitioner, I think ethical would be the other word I put in there <laughs> is really key. Definitely. Um, so I'll just go through um, a case study. Can, can we so see the camera first though? Can we see what you use? Oh, okay. Let me jump up and grab it. It's still in its case. Okay. This is my massive case for it. <laughs> okay. And just unshare your screen so we can see it. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, stop sharing. There okay. we go. And I'll spotlight you and that way we can really see. Okay. So. This is the camera, a little bit of a 360. Oh, cool. So it yeah. almost looks like a DSLR in a way. Yeah, so it, pretty, it looks like a normal camera, except obviously you have this swivel. Yep. Um, other than that, it does look like a normal camera. Yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty, um, it's quite bulky actually. And so it has a screen on it. And so when yeah, you're looking at that picture, you're looking at that screen. It's actually a touch screen. Yeah, it takes a while to turn on. Okay. Um, so, but basically that whole right. back part is a screen. So when you're taking a picture, you're actually looking at that screen and lining that up with what it is you want to take a picture of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think someone just asked a question. Yeah, she's asking, do many vets use this now as a diagnostic tool? And how would you find someone that is using it? Um, so in the UK, um, that's where the company I work for is based. Um, quite a lot of vets are using it over there. Um, it's been um, kind of introduced more earlier and the vets are starting to get on board with it over there. Here in Australia, I'm finding it quite hard to get in with vets. Um, obviously, they're quite busy, but um, it's just like educating them on the technology. Um, I'm not sure about in America. I don't think I know of anyone in, over there. So I'd have to have a look around. But um, And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but um, I've seen where, like when I was over at, uh, in uh, the UK, when I went mm -hmm. over, I did a surefoot demo for a uh, animal physical therapy group, IVRAP, I think it is. Um, they, they were so much further ahead in the understanding of physical therapy and uh, 
working with the horses, not just having the vet come and look, but also the supporting therapies that they could employ. And I think wasn't it in the last Olympics or maybe the one before they were looking at pressures from girths and bridles and that sort of thing and addressing that. So in many ways, the UK tends to be sort of the leader in terms of looking at the welfare and the technology that they can use Mm -hmm. to keep improve the way. I don't know if that's what you experienced, but Kind of- yeah, when I went over there and trained, I could definitely tell that they were ahead by, I would say, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know. There's, I would think that there's probably a, a place where people can go and look for someone who's a technician, infrared technician, mm-hmm. um, which you'll probably provide for us at the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you visit the VET IR website, so VET and then the little dash and then capital IR. We do have a contact form um, on the website. So if you were um, wanting to inquire about um, a bit more information. See if I type there, it yeah. right in the chat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Cool. Yep. Um, so I'll go back to my battery's actually flat on my um, camera. So okay. I can't check it. But at least now we know it looks kind of like a regular camera. It's got a swivel lens. It's got a nice big screen. So when you're uh, taking an image of a horse, you're looking at that screen and you can really see what's going on before you take that picture. Yep. Um, and I assume that you calibrate your camera on a regular basis to make yep. sure. So I have, I'll, I'll go through that later, the calibration and stuff, I think. Okay. Um, but yeah, I get it calibrated annually. Um, and then when I turn it on, I leave it for 10 minutes to calibrate again. Um, and then also I can, um, go into my settings and self-calibrate it. Yeah. Okay. Because that, that's one of the keys to consistency is that the calibrations are always standardized. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's go to a case history. Okay. Let me go back to this. Let me know when you can see it. Oh, is that the wrong one? I don't know. Oh, there it is. I definitely think I shared the wrong screen. Let me. Um, um, someone's asking, somebody came in a bit late and is asking what you mean by lesions. Uh, so tendon lesions. So, um, tears in the tendon or, um, ruptures. Um, okay. So I'll go through this case study. Just turn that off. Um, So the following case study um, highlights the importance of owners being able to track subtle signs um, of lameness or changes in behaviour or performance, um, and then how infrared imaging assisted um, with veterinarian diagnosis. So this is Ronnie. He's a 17-year-old Irish sport horse gelding. Um, He's been uh, competed through Pony Club and evented up to British eventing novice. Slide slowly. It's gonna work. Okay. Um, so Ronnie began to display a slight hind limb gait asymmetry, and owner noticed an unusual hind limb tapping um, when he was stood still in the stable. Um, he had previously been diagnosed with mild hock arthritis, so that was um, relevant to his case. Um, the owner decided to investigate further despite um, that he was still jumping at the same height um, quite happily. 
Um, so then IR findings, um, imaging was initially used just to assess his hind limb function. Um, the imaging was fa uh, found possible functional findings in both hocks and the pelvic region. Upon um, veterinarian examination, the vet found him positive um, to flexion on both hind limbs. So then it was decided to medicate both hocks and then they were able to get back out um, to competing. And then in November, 2019, um, they were out arena venting and he presented with an increased tension um, in the right canner um, and, um, and an unusual takeoff in his uh, jumping phase. Um, so uh, the owner seeked veterinarian advice and they treated both hocks again. Um, and then over the next couple of months, the owner felt that whilst Ronnie had certainly improved, um, he was still not quite right. Um, the horse would occasionally appear to drop one side of his pelvis. He seemed a little more resistant in the left jaw in the contact and his left ear seemed to be held back intermittently. Um, so obviously his hocks had been retreated. So um, we knew something else was going on. And then in March 2020, IR imaging was again performed, this time on the neck and spinal um, region. The report suggested um, that the levels of the thoracic spine and left SI region uh, activity were significant. Upon investigation with the attending vet, um, they noted that upon palpation, Ronnie was extremely sensitive over his um, thoracic and sacroiliac regions. Um, X-rays were then um, performed and several impinging, uh, sorry, impinging dorsal spinous processes were found. So um, kissing spine. Um, Ronnie then went for resection surgery in August 2020 and he had his sacroiliac joints medicated. Um, he'll be monitored closely with IR imaging on his return to work and rehabilitation process. And I actually just received an update on Ronnie this morning. Um, his rehab has been delayed due to an injury, but he's um, now at six weeks of rhythm um, work at walk and he's just about to start trotting next week. So can you talk about the, the IR picture of Ronnie? Yeah. Um, what do you want to know about? Well, like what, you know, it's obviously that there's an asymmetry and, and just mm -hmm. explain a little bit about the colors that we're seeing, like what, what right. do the different colors mean? So with the, this is a Meditherm image. So um, different type of system to what I use. So vet IR, we use um, the VET 2000 Meditherm model and then the FLIR T660 and above models. Um, so the color spectrum of this, so black, um, being the coldest and then it goes um, to blue and then all the way up to red and white being the highest. So I'll go through um, a bit more about the images later on. Okay. Um, but obviously there is an asymmetry and you can see on the um, left side that over the SI joint that it's quite um, high up in temperature, yeah. And do you also look at cold spots? Yes. So um, when evaluating things like nerve dysfunction, um, there are cold spots um, with that. Um, there's some other conditions that um, show a decrease in temperature as well. Yeah. 
obviously I'm not a vet, so I don't, I can't really say like what relates to what. Yeah. Right. But, but um, as I understand it, um, you're looking at hot and cold because cold can mm-hmm. be a lack of circulation, whereas hot is an increase in circulation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so the specificity and sensitivity of IR imaging is limited for some conditions. Um, however, following on from the case that we just looked at, um, you can see how it would excel in looking at the whole body. Um, by identifying areas of dysfunction, accurately pinpointing musculoskeletal inflammation and injuries in areas that um, do require further investigation. So being able to quickly and inexpensively scan the whole body speeds up the diagnostic process, um, allowing for training schedules and um, treatment to start. Um, So when imaging equine patients or other animals for veterinary diagnosis, it is important to follow um, similar clinical standards and principles used in um, the human medical sector. Swaying from these guidelines may cause um, the image to show errors or false readings, which is also known as artifacts. Um, So this means that the environment needs to be controlled and imaging protocols adhered to. If they aren't, errors and false readings will follow. So I'll go into more of the appropriate imaging environment and protocols in a minute. Um, And then standardization and correct patient preparation are most vital to minimize artifacts as well. And so essentially you have to set up an environment that's under control. In other words, if you had like a bright sun landing on a part of the body, that's going to alter the image that you get. Yeah. Definitely. And then you take the findings that you get from that and you discuss that with the, with the vet for that animal. In other words, it's part of the team. Yeah. Um, I, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that has come up over and over again, that it takes a team to keep these horses together and keep their riders yeah. together. Um, yeah. And so you're basically presenting your findings uh, of the IR imaging to the veterinarian and then they're doing doing the diet using that as part of their diagnostics. Yeah. So I'll go through the um, kind of the phases of imaging in a minute as well. Right. Um, so then we have preparing the horse for imaging. Um, several pro- protocols and environmental variables will be checked and taken into consideration to ensure accuracy when collecting imaging data. So patients will need to be prepared accordingly. So the patient needs to be clean, dry, free of sweat, mud and dirt. Um, Long coats um, can alter readings. So horses may need to be clipped five to seven days prior. Obviously we're talking um, your heavier, hairier breeds, Um, not even to coat, that's that's all right. Um, And then feathers may need to be clipped. Manes should be tied up off the neck and tails plaited or bandaged. Um, Feet should be cleaned 30 minutes prior. The horse should be able to acclimatize in the stable or imaging area um, for at least one hour prior. And then horses may receive a meal prior to their appointment. That always helps so they're not agitated um, during the imaging. All the horse can eat during imaging if they're not a pig. <laughs> not like my horse. He can't be fed during imaging. Okay. <laughs> um, so then things to avoid prior to your appointment. 
So brushing or touching the horse or, um, overly, I guess, um, increases blood flow and should be avoided um, one to two hours before your appointment. Um, try and avoid clean uh, creams, liniments, sprays and gels for 12 hours. Rugs should be removed one hour prior and boots and bandages should be avoided 12 hours prior. And for our American um, rugs or blankets. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Blankets, rugs and blankets. <laughs> um, horses should not be ridden or worked at least one hour prior or be left in the paddock to run around with their friends. Um, therapeutic tools such as um, shockwave, equisage, magnetics and um, biofeedback technology should also be av avoided. Your technician can um, usually advise on specific timeframes for each of those. Uh, physical therapy, including massage and fascia release, should be avoided seven days prior. Medication, including anti-inflammatory, should be stopped 48 hours prior. Steroids, two to four weeks. Um, steroid injections into the sacroiliac joint is actually two months. Um, but all that can be discussed with your consultant or veterinarian. Um, and sedation should not be administered. Preferably, horses should be imaged in a temperature of around or below 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, imaging also works well in the dark. And then surefoot, we're actually collecting some data on this. Um, nothing's really finalised yet. Um, I'm looking at doing a pilot study soon, but um, I would suggest a few days, um, avoid this for a few days prior, yeah. Interesting. So basically what you're saying here is that it, it would be easy to interfere with a, with mm -hmm. an accurate reading by, you know, petting your horse a lot before the technician shows up or, yep. uh, you know, using any creams or exercising the horse. Um, and I think most people don't realize how sensitive the equipment is that this really matters. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of my colleagues, she, um, she went to image a horse a while ago and the report came back and then the owner fessed up that she didn't take the magnetic bands off the horse. Um, she only took them off like 10 minutes before the um, technician came. So that was a bit of a drama because obviously then it, it wasn't an accurate reading. Right. So it's important to be able to note these things. Yep. Um, and then we have our suitable imaging environment. So we do require a closed stable or like area such as a shed or barn, um, which needs to be lined to um, limit environmental factors. So the sun, the winds, the rain, um, as we are measuring the skin surface temperature, these factors are definitely gonna alter the results. Um, if the facility isn't something that is accessible for you, often we do work out of veterinarian practices, obviously, because we are working with vets. So they are quite happily, they are quite happy for us to use their facility. Um, you can, we can use the x-ray room or again, a suitable area such as um, stables or one of the practices I work with, they have a folding stable, which is quite big and easy to use. Um, and then sunlight and radiant heat from unlined metal doors, um, walls, 
or roofs are going to affect it as well. And um, fans, breezes and mud floors are going to alter results as well. Um, so again, trying to avoid these things um, when looking at um, suitable imaging environments. And then lastly, um, bedding needs to be removed from the screening area or at least banked to one side. So the horse is standing flat and we're able to see the whole hoof. So either like, um, like either of these pictures above. So the bedding's banked to one side in the right one and then on the left, it's completely removed. And so this is actually a great way to be able to assess somebody who, if somebody does say, oh, I can do thermal imaging, if they're not taking these precautions to get a good image, you already know, maybe this isn't going to give you the result yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. It's, and it's if all these things, go ahead, all these things aren't taken into consideration, it's basically just a pretty picture of your horse. Like it's not going to assist veterinarian diagnosis or further investigation. Right. If, if yeah. they don't keep a standard. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'll go through the collection process. So the capturing of the images, um, it's important that each body part is framed correctly in each image, uh, remaining at a consistent distance for opposing sides. So left and right, ensuring images are properly focused and that the camera lens remains perpendicular to the body part um, that's being examined. So if contralateral images are not directly comparable, then false positives or false negative interpretation can result. So like the example here, um, the neck's nicely framed into the image. Um, they're at a consistent distance for the opposing sides. It's nicely focused and the camera lens is quite clearly perpendicular to the examined body part. So it's comparable. And this is the same horse, the two sides of his neck? Yeah. Yeah. And there is a, is it, is that a significant difference that what we see, because it appears to be a significant difference? Um, I'm not quite sure what was on this report. Um, obviously the pattern is different, but I'm not a vet, so I can't really say. Um, yeah. So, so I, I guess what I'm asking is you might see differences on the two sides. The question is whether or not it's a clinical finding that's that, yeah, that's yeah. going to look at and diagnose and go, oh, this is this is definitely different. Mm -hmm. Also depends on whether it can be linked to a certain dysfunction or abnormality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so here's another example. Um, so on the left here, we have um, a correctly framed and positioned horse within the image. It's nicely focused and the camera lens remains perpendicular to the horse's legs. Um, whereas the one on the right, the quality of the image is not that great and the horse's legs are not perpendicular to the lens and the framing is not that good either um, as part of the horse's hoof is actually cut out. So that wouldn't be a great image to have interpreted by a vet. And then on the left here, we have a not so good image. Um, the detail is not that good, although they are perpendicular to the patient. Ideally, we would want to break the legs up into three sectors as the one on the right, on the, the ones on the right are. So the right set of images is what we would consider good. A warmth in there. It's a, it, you don't realize how much blood flow there is down in the feet, do you, until you see it? No. Yeah. 
Um, and then we have dynamic testing, so exercise testing. Uh, this will usually be performed in majority of equine cases um, if the horse is on box rest or stall rest due to an injury or lameness then we obviously wouldn't conduct this um, this exercise um, so it usually includes um, 10 to 15 minutes of controlled exercise which enables us to run comparative studies of the pre and post exercise scans um, which helps us document the horse's physiological response this process provides invaluable data, um, helping to better localize pathology and rule out baseline artifacts. So it gets the blood flowing um, to areas or maybe not blood flowing to other areas yet. Cool. My computer taking a second, it's just yep. thinking. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, so then we have preparation for analysis. Um, so once the data is collected, processing then begins. Adaption of the images is completed by the trained consultant. So that's what I do um, to ensure that um, they are presented for veterinary interpretation um, in an appropriate manner. The adaption process um, is critical to analysis, ensuring images are not overexposed or underexposed. Specific thermal range and span parameters ensure the data is comparative across all sets for each patient. Um, this enables more efficient veterinary entomologist interpretation. And then a full clinical history should be provided. And this should include uh, age of the horse, breed, type of discipline, um, current level of performance. Um, and then it can also include information on hoof function, um, current and previous health concerns, as well as previous injuries and medical history. So such as um, veterinarian examinations of radiology, um, ultrasound and palpation. And then data and all that relevant information is sent off to um, a trained vet um, for analysis. So your so job is to make sure that you've got nice, consistent pictures, well taken, well presented, so that the veterinarian can interpret them correctly. Yeah. So then the veterinarian's role in the interpretation process. So thermal imaging or infrared technicians, so that's, that's me, um, is responsible for the accurate capturing of the data, including patient history but it's the job of the qualified veterinarian trained in thermographic analysis to analyze and interpret the data provided. Um, so as with any diagnostic tool, only vets may diagnose. Um, so not all vets are qualified to interpretate the thermal data. Um, it's important to use a service that provides both qualified technicians and trained interpretation vets. Thermal scans on their own will tell the layperson or unqualified vet um, very little. So once the interpretation vet uh, receives the images and data and relevant information, they will assess the findings and generate a thermal report for use when investigating diagnosis further by um, the client's attending vet. So imaging technicians are usually also consultants and they can liaise with your vet um, about the report. So can you take... Um, uh images and then sell, send them to a vet who's specifically trained to interpret those images rather than sending it to your uh, local vet who doesn't 
know how to interpret them? I mean, in other words, yeah. can you, you can use um, a specific vet who can read the read the. Mm -hmm. So vet IR, we have a team of veterinarian surgeons that are trained in thermographic analysis. And then we have a team of consultants. So that's me. So the consultants take the images and they write up the history and adapt the images. And then we send them to our team of um, vets and then they analyze the data and generate a vet IR report. And then they send it back to us. And then we go through it with the client and their veterinarian and chosen professionals. And then the client goes away um, and conducts further investigation. Yeah. So, so that's interesting because I didn't realize that you had a team of veterinarians specifically trained to interpret the imagery. Yeah, um, yeah. But that makes so much sense because mm -hmm. unless you're used to reading this stuff, you don't really, you're, you know, it takes practice and experience to yeah. know what you're looking at. So, yeah. so basically, I think if I understand it right, your job is to make sure that you get the best image you can so that when you present the data and the history, and then you present mm -hmm. that to the interpreting vets so that they can analyze that and, and the case of the horse and then work with the attending vet team, veterinarian, mm -hmm. owner, uh, other equine professionals to either decide whether or not to do further diagnostics or use the information and say, oh, we didn't notice that this is something we need to address. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. How many are there of you that you know of? Um, <laughs> consultants. I think there's 15 consultants and vets. Um, I think we're down to three at the moment with our vets. We are current, we do have a training program um, for vets in progress so we do, I think we have three vets that are doing the um, trial training progress. And yeah. I'm sure that COVID's obviously influenced this is just like it's influenced everything else. Yes. <laughs> um, so infrared imaging shows the horse's physiological status by mapping through images, blood flow and skin surface temperature. When the horse is healthy, the thermal pattern is symmetrical but when disease is occurring, the pattern becomes asymmetrical, showing hot spots in one area and cold spots in the opposite side or a combination of both. But obviously this is a topic for another day. Yeah. Um, so now I have another case study. Um, so this is a nine-year-old um, Irish sport horse gelding, 16-2 hands uh, with an approximate three-month history of a low-grade left hind limb lameness with the significant reluctance to flex the left hind limb. Um, so infrared, infrared imaging isolated a significant inflammatory activity of both stifles. Um, however, it was left more than right. Um, examination found infusion of the medial femorotibial joint on palpation and on ultrasound examination of the left stifle. So there were no other abnormalities visible on the ultrasound of the left stifle. Um, stintigraphy of the hind limbs and pelvic and pelvis was unmarkable, um, as was radio, radiography of the left stifle. Medication of the medial and lateral femorotibial joint was performed. Um, this produced a significant um, in the lameness, significant improvement in the lameness, although it was only short-lived. So then the patient underwent MRI of the left stifle um, 
mild to moderate um, synovitis and arthrosis affecting the medial femorotibial joint was observed along with defects affecting the tibial surface and moderate abnormalities of the medial meniscus. So damage was primarily located underlying the medial collateral ligament and um, focal extension cranially and caudally of the collateral ligament. So then surgery was performed and um, treatment administered accordingly. Um, so IR imaging correctly identified the abnormal abnormal stifle pathology in the initial stages of investigation. So really helping um, identify and pinpoint areas, yeah. So basically what the imagery said, this is the area to start paying attention to, and then they did further diagnostics and the further diagnostics revealed that um, the horse needed surgery. And so when, after a horse has had surgery or, or been treated for something, do you then use IR to like follow the, uh, as a follow-up to see if it's improving or getting better? Yep. yep. So um, I have a few cases. This horse didn't go for surgery, but um, he has quite a lot of hock inflammation. Actually, the show jumping horse we did when you were over here with the short foot. Yep. Um, so I was monitoring him on a um, regular basis, just watching for changes. Um if a horse has injured itself, we can definitely monitor the horse every so often. Um, I try to monitor um, horses every two to three months. Um, I think that's quite a nicely spaced out monitoring um, timeframe, yeah. So you basically, by, by uh, monitoring them and coming back and checking every two to three months, you can pick up oh, there's been a change from the last time. We need to be conscious of this and start to look and make sure that it isn't something serious. Yeah, and if the consultant thinks that there may be something concerning going on, then we can definitely um, send the images off for interpretation and um, definitely help with the identification process, yeah. So in many ways, it could be beneficial as a, a, a more of a, well, preventative maintenance um, mm -hmm. So you have kind of the preventative maintenance, making sure that everything's going okay, and then the help in, in finding places when you've got a problem, being able yeah. to find it more clearly. Cool. Um, so then this is from Dr. Tracy Turner. So he's from the USA. Um, so its potential is... <laughs> its potential has barely been tapped because there's just not enough people doing it. Um, like most of these new newer approaches, um, if you're not taught it at vet school, you tend not to use it. Um, when looking back at the use of ultrasound back in the early 80s, it was untouched in the veterinarian field. Um, but then the veterinarian school started teaching the students about it. And it can take up to 20 to 30 years to get a, a modality adopted in the veterinarian industry. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes it, a while. <laughs> it, well, it's interesting because that's, you know, when you look at that and you go, it can take 20 to 30 years for something to get adopted. Mm -hmm. um, you start to realize that, you know, something can be around for a long time. That's really beneficial, but we get stuck in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's so, a lot of what ifs, like what if it doesn't work? Yeah. I guess I should and be it, really pleased that Surefoot wound up at AAP last year um, yeah. for only five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, and I, and Dr. Turner was actually at my booth. I had him kneeling on a pad. Oh, was he? <laughs> yeah, on my physio pad. I have a picture. I can send it to you. <laughs> He's a really, yeah. really nice guy. And it also, it, we do lock a, uh, lack a lot of research on infrared imaging and its use in um, veterinary medicine. So we are conducting a lot of research into um, correlating it back to other diagnostic tools, um, which we're hoping, we're hoping to start soon. Um, but obviously all depends on COVID. Yeah, but that really does help. And, um, you know, having yeah. data you know, to show correlations. I think the one that you're going to talk about with uh, Sharon May Davis and uh, what you found there and then on the dissection, I think that's fascinating. Um, yeah. and, and more of that kind of thing would definitely help. Um, and it's also a question of availability. Like I, I don't know anyone personally over here in the United States that has a thermal imaging camera that's a trained technician the way you are. Um, that doesn't yeah. mean they're not here. Um, yeah. But there's also that piece of just, you know, getting your numbers up, if you will, for, for it to be available. So yeah. there's the dual tracks of data and, and um, well, actually data and veterinarians starting to use it in schools and having the people there available to do the technology yeah. work. And so we are trying to take it more into veterinarian practices, like um, have vet nurses trained as um, consultants. Um, so that the vets can use it in-house rather than um, having it out of the veterinarian um, practice um, where any client can really ask for it, yeah. Right. Cool. Um, and I guess, does anyone have any questions before I go through this last case study? It's quite lengthy, this case study. So I can either save it for next time or we can go through it. Uh, well, we're a little over the hour, so okay. um, I'm just wondering if it's a lengthy case study, maybe we save it for next time? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Because I know you have some other interesting things to talk about next time as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and if anybody has any questions for Gracie, just pop it in the chat or the Q&A. Um, I know that people were finding this really, really interesting. And I, I think it's fascinating, not only because I'm, I've uh, seen thermography a long time ago, but to see how, um, if you will, the, the rigorousness, the rigor with which you are taking your images and the team that you work with to make sure that they're interpreted correctly along with yeah. the case information to take back to the attending vet and the team to then um, further. So it really is another useful piece of information. And so often um, the, it's we're missing some data. We're missing some a piece of information. And anytime we can gather that and then look at that whole picture, it really helps clarify what's going on. Yeah. And I'm quite strict with myself. Like if I'm not happy with a scan that I've taken, I will go back and I will do the appointment again. Yeah. No cost because yeah. it, it's, it's information that definitely needs to be captured properly. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's, you know, like I, like I said, I had a fun little one on my, on my phone, you know, and I'd mess around with it, but um, clearly that's not going to be the kind of consistent data one needs to really get a good diagnosis on anything. No. Cool. All right. So if people have, uh, want more information or are curious about this, how can they find out more? 
Um, so they can visit the VetIR website. Um, we do have a lot of um, information on there. Um, you can sign up to our mailing list. Um, other than that, you can either contact me. Um, I have my own website, um, syncequine.com.au. And you put that um, in the chat because I'm not okay. sure I'm going to spell it right. It, it's what it just say it again too for anybody that's going to watch. Um, let me just um, so website syncequine.com.au, or you can find me on Facebook at Gracie Herring Equine Services. Awesome. So if anybody has any questions and wants to learn more about thermal imaging or infrared imaging, <laughs> I can see now where we got, oops, I just expanded the chat and it's, that was weird. Um, but I can see now, you know, I really loved your history because that I hadn't thought about the fact that, that it goes that far back. I think that's yeah. fascinating and kind of helps us understand how we got to the word thermography actually. Um, but I think you're right that IR is a much better uh, term for it. Yeah, definitely. Well, th this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for doing this. I really love that you went back through the history. That was really, really great. And um, we'll have you back to have some more case studies because I definitely want to hear about that one with Sharon May Davis. I think that is so fascinating. I was looking forward to doing more, but we will. We just have to get out of COVID and then you can get yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be great. Hopefully soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And thank you everybody else for watching. And just remember, you can find this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. We have made podcasts out of quite a number of them and you can find them on iTunes at Wendy's Winnie's. Okay. So whether you're driving down the road or you want to watch it when you're home, please don't drive and listen to the webinars on YouTube. Don't, that's why we made the podcast to make it safer. Um, but join us again tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be um, Susie Buck and I, and we're going to talk about using Surefoot with school horses. So that'll be at one o'clock tomorrow, Friday. Thank you so much, Gracie, for joining me. Um, it's Thanks been a pleasure. So nice to see you. It's been a while. It has. Um, good luck with your, with your new career. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye.